0: Uh, chapter six. Uh, we've spent a good bit of time here in the sixth chapter of this gospel, uh, but that's because there's a lot to unpack in this section. Uh, we don't we don't just stay here because we think it's fun to be in chapter six. There's just a lot in this chapter. Jesus has made some pretty big statements about about who he is and about what that means about what that means for us. And so let's just jump in here this morning. Let's let's give our attention to the word of the Lord here as His gathered people. I mean, that's that's what we are. We're here under His rule, under His reign here presently. That's who we are. We That's what the church is, wherever it gathers, right? Wherever it's gathered even today in this community, whether it's on the other side of Lexington or across the dam, uh, the church is the people of God under His reign and under His rule. So would you stand with me now and let's tune our hearts to hear uh, the word of the Lord. We're actually going to start in verse uh, 58. So this is John 6, starting in verse 58. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like the bread the fathers ate and died, whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue as he taught at Capernaum. When many of the disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, Do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh is no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life, but, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning that the, who those were who would not believe and who it was who would betray him. And he said, This is why I told you that no one can come to me unless it is granted him by the Father. After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. So Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And yet one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. And this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you uh, for speaking to us. We thank you for your word to us. We thank you that you have not left us to ourselves to just, to just wander. And you have not left us on our own to just try and figure things out. And you've not left us in our, in our frailty, in our weakness, in our ignorance, to try and blaze this path on our own, but you've given your word to us. And we pray now that you would open our hearts and our minds to receive it. I pray that you would work in spite of me. I pray that you wouldn't let the weakness of my voice hide the strength of your word. That you wouldn't let my stammering tongue stand in the pathway of what you might say to us this morning. So I pray that you'd give us ears to hear, Lord. Give us eyes to see. That you'd awaken our souls this morning to know you. And we pray that in Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. Uh, A few years so a few years back, my wife signed up for something that had been at least up until that point uh, totally out of her comfort zone. Uh, now, she's a tough girl, okay? I, I want to say that. She's a tough lady. She, she's given birth to three children, right? She teaches second grade for a living. She, she, she's as tough as they come in my book. But, but when she signed up to do one of those, uh, those Marine Corps mud runs, like, I think everybody who knew her kind of unanimously went, what? Like, are you sure? Like, you know, right, that that's going to involve running and, and mud and obstacles and all those things. And, and we were just a little surprised, okay? That that never been her deal up into. That point, and, and so we started. She was like, "I gotta get, I gotta get set to do this thing, man." So we started like running a little bit, and uh, and at that time we're like pushing baby strollers around all the like hills around our house, and and people would see us and like honk because they like they knew that wasn't our deal. Like we don't, I, I don't jog either. That just that's never been part of our our, our plan for uh, fitness. And so anyway, we're we're out there doing this, and and she's getting better and better. And then, and so I'm ready, man. I'm like, this is gonna be awesome. We're gonna go out there. I'm gonna take the kids. We're gonna cheer her on. And, and, uh, and then two days before the event, her team of four ladies lost one of their members. And so within a matter of seconds, just like that, my, my plans for the weekend went from being pure spectator to being conscripted into now this team of three ladies and me. And, uh, and so we go out to wherever this thing was, like way, way out at some base, and we, uh, we, we take off, right? And everybody's excited, and we're uh, wearing clothes that you're obviously going to throw away, and we had an absolute blast. It was one of the funnest uh, experiences since we've ever had. I mean, we just had a great, great time doing this thing, and, and uh, with the exception of one obstacle. There was one obstacle in this thing that was, it was like you, you're running down the path and it's just, uh, it's, it's really, it's just fun. You're like crawling in the mud and, and all the stuff you weren't supposed to do as a child, but you really wanted to do. And now somebody's telling you do this or, or you get disqualified. So we did it. And then you're, you're running and you come to this like really high wall, like 14 feet. And, um, and, and, the, and you can't go around it. That's, there, there's like military people saying, no, 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 no. You can't go around it. You can't, uh, you can't go through it. Obviously, it's just a wall. And so the obstacle is you've got to get your whole team over over the wall. And I see this as a monumental challenge in that moment. And so we are, uh, we, we, we ran into that wall. And, uh, and for a lot of teams, that was the turning point. I mean, they had a lot of fun. But then at that point, they just kind of, okay, okay. Uh, we've done half of it. That's good enough. We're going to go back to the car and hose off or whatever. Um, and our passage this morning, I, I'm not telling you that story for no reason, although it's just fun to tell because it was mud and, and games effectively. But uh, in our passage this morning, we're given a glimpse of of the types of people who were following Jesus around. Uh, last week we saw that it was, it was the Jews. That was one of the groups that was identified. It was the Jews who were grumbling against him. They were the sort of uh, bureaucratic leadership of the day. They were the elites in the culture. And they're, they're watching Jesus with a very skeptical eye. Okay, that's, that's sort of how they approached him. They didn't really like what he was saying about who he was or, or about what that would mean for them. They, they, they looked at him with with angst in their hearts. And, and today we meet the other two groups. One group is introduced there in verse 60. It's, it's, it's just called his disciples. His disciples. That's the people who are following him around. It's the group of people who are there listening to him teach. Uh, it's a group that, uh, that, that they, they've been spending time with him. They've been in his presence. They, they've been around him. And we know at times that crowd could grow to be fairly large, like upwards of 5,000 men or so. And the third group that's included uh, at the end of this passage, right, right there in verse 67, it says uh, that they were the 12. You see the 12 listed there. Jesus said to the 12. It's the 12 specifically who represent um, the entire other group. Now, I know at times it's hard to make that distinction between disciples and the twelve, because typically we call the twelve the disciples. And, and one of the ways we can articulate the difference here is what we, is the way we articulate the difference between the visible and the invisible church. And I, I'm aware that that might be language that you probably don't use in ordinary conversation. But the, the, the visible church is all people who outwardly make a profession of faith in Jesus. It's all people who, who would say, yes, I'm a Christian. Uh, they they probably go to church somewhere. They they show up on Sundays. Um, uh, they 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 like know the insider language with the, that we use. they know some of that obnoxious stuff. They probably call each other brother every once in a while. You know they talk about being blessed. That type of stuff. That's all that type of all that type of language that we hear and we go yeah. That some people hear and go what right that just words that we don't often use outside of church context. And so they know they know that they've been there that. They make claims, um, they make a visible testimony, like they'll say it, yeah, I believe this, and, and, and I'll be honest, in our area of the country, uh, they, they might make that claim because they're like white, middle class, and vote Republican. That's literally what it seems to be to, to get Facebook Christian status, that's kind of all it, all it takes these days, how, how far we've come, right? Uh, that's the visible church. Uh, the invisible church is made up of all who have actually trusted in Jesus Christ for their eternal life, who trusted in him for their salvation. It's, it's all believers in all places at all times. All believers in all places at all times. It's the invisible church, it's, 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 we can't see it. We don't know the heart of man. I don't, I don't, I don't take for granted that anybody in this room, and I mean, I, I, I love the people in this room, but I don't take for granted that you're actually a believer. I trust you. I don't think you're a liar but I know that ultimately that's between you and God. It's not I can't see into your soul. It's, I'll walk with you through everything in life. I will I will pray with you and 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 hope for you and dream with you. But ultimately, the the invisible piece of that is between God and you. It's all people who have trusted in Christ alone for their salvation. And 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 what we would say is that every person who's in the visible church is not necessarily in the invisible. But I would tell you that everybody who's in the invisible church is part of the visible church. And that's what we see here. All of the 12 are there with the disciples, but we know that all of the disciples are not part of the 12. And what we see here is that they have, for many of them, they've reached the wall in their race. Up until that point, things have been going pretty well for them in their discipleship. If you really think about it, I mean, they've been, people are being healed, right? We know Jesus is going about healing. We know that he's been feeding the hungry, he's been healing the sick and the wounded. I mean, that's a pretty good deal. It's been going pretty well for them. It's not too bad. It's it's like the lead up to the 14 foot wall, right? This isn't that bad. In fact, this is easier than just running because I get to dive into cool water every hundred or so yards. I mean, it's just, it was great. The mud run was great until we hit that wall. And that wall was insurmountable. It was an impossible task, effectively. And so these these folks have kind of reached their turning point. Something happens here in chapter 6. It really is a point of, of sort of demarcation in the Gospel of John. They've reached a new point in the journey, a point that I'm going to call the wall of scandal. Look back at verse 60 with me. It says, When the disciples heard it, they said, This is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? You see, they've come upon the wall. Now, what they had heard, uh, the it that they are talking about, that this is a hard saying, who can listen to it, that it that they're referring to is what we heard last week. It's where, and and we even acknowledged last week, that was a difficult thing. Jesus is making some hard statements. Chapter 6 is not for the faint of heart. When he starts talking about eating my flesh and drinking my blood, those are hard, weighty, heavy statements that he's making about himself. He said, this is the bread that has come down from heaven, not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Remember now, Jesus is claiming to be that bread. He's saying, I'm the bread that came down from heaven. Whoever feeds on my flesh and whoever drinks my blood abides in me and I in him. That's what Jesus told them. That's what he's telling us today. And I think we can admit that's a difficult thing to just grab hold of and run with. Eat my flesh, drink my blood. That's what he tells us, and it's not a little thing. And so what we see here is that now it's the disciples themselves who start to grumble. There's a stirring, sort of a negative angst among them. And, and, and so Jesus, who didn't back down last week, he didn't back down in the, in the, when the Jews started to grumble against him, he doesn't back down this week either. He actually kind of takes the fight to them. He says, do you take offense at this? There's a couple of things here I want you to notice. Uh, the first is that there is no indication that the disciples were asking for a clarification. Like They're not confused about what he's saying. They're not going, could you explain that a little bit? I mean, I hear what you're saying, but could you maybe unpack that a little bit? They're not asking for that. They're not asking him to expand on his statements. They just grumbled. And so, and so what that means is that while it's a hard saying, while it's a hard teaching, it's not unintelligible. Like they get it. They're not confused. They understand what he's saying. And so what they mean when they say it's a hard saying is they're saying it's a difficult saying, a difficult teaching to accept. You might find that word hard actually translated as harsh. Several, several different translations put the word harsh in there or, or just to track along with how Jesus responds and to give you a little hint into what the depth of, that, of meaning that's happening here is you might also translate that word as offensive. You see, they're, they're saying this is an offensive teaching. What you're saying, it, it strikes against our sensibilities to eat your flesh, to drink your blood. These are not things you're supposed to say. And you see, that word for offense, it should sound a little similar to, uh, familiar to it. It's, it's the word uh, in, in Greek, scandalizo. It's, it's, a, it's a word that we actually see a good bit in the New Testament. It's translated several different ways. It's some, it means to appall someone. He means to repulse them. Paul uses that same word in 1 Corinthians 8, 13 to talk about causing another to stumble. It's obviously where we get the modern word scandalous from. See, it's not that his words are unintelligible. It's that in the minds of those listening, his words are intolerable. They understand it, but they hate it. He's gone too far. This teaching as a, as a singular unit is the wall that these disciples have now crashed into on the path that had been going pretty well for them. And Jesus knows their hearts. He knows the tension that is growing in their souls as he presses in on this. And so he asks them, do you take offense at this? Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? Uh, back in verse 38, okay? So back in 638, Jesus had told them that he had come down from heaven. He said, I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. That's what Jesus said. He makes that declaration about why he's here. This is why I'm here. I've come to do the will of him who sent me. Let's just consider that for a second together because Jesus explains what that will is in a couple different ways in the New Testament. All right, back in, uh, it's made clear that Jesus came as the Messiah, right? He came as as God's anointed. Peter's going to call him the Holy One of God, right? He came to redeem his people for his glory. But considering the will of God in this context, there there are three unique ways that the New Testament uh, finishes the sentence, the Son of Man Came the, the Son of Man is, is a reference back to Daniel as Jesus' chosen designation for himself. And he says that there, there's three ways that he finishes that sentence. The Son of Man came. The first one is in, in Mark 10, 45, where Jesus says, "...for even the Son of Man came not to be served." but to serve. And if you've been in church all your life, you know that he says something else. He says, and to give his life as a ransom for many. He came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So that's one way that he he finishes that sentence. He didn't, come, uh, he didn't come in grandeur. He didn't come in splendor. You know this story, and I know it's not Christmas, but we can talk about it. He came in a, in a, in a humble birth. He came in humility and, and meekness and lowliness. He came in, 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 in shambles from a worldly perspective, not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's the first example of the will of him who sent Jesus. It's a purpose statement. The second is found in Luke 19, 10, where Jesus says to the tax collector, to Zacchaeus, you can kind of picture this scene now, right? He's been up in the tree. He watched Jesus come. Now, he's out of the tree. They're at his house hanging out. And Jesus says to him in, in Luke 19, he says, the son of man came to seek and to save the lost. That's the second way he finishes that sentence. He came to seek and to save the lost. He came to leave the 99 in search of the one lost sheep, right? He came to light a lamp. He came to sweep the house. He came to find the lost coin. That's why he came. He came not to be the brother who sits on the porch and watches the prodigal run off. No, he came to go and find the prodigal and bring him home. He's the true elder brother, right? We've talked about that. And Jesus didn't come to sit passively and see who might show up at the party. He went to go and invite them. Oh, we just had our our twenty year reunion for high school. Literally last night, it was awesome. All right, uh, saw a bunch of people we hadn't seen in like well, like ten years because we saw them at the ten year reunion. But it was, uh, and so we uh, we had this thing, and and we were part of the, like the planning team. Uh, and and actually, Joey handled all the like money, and we had invested our personal money into securing the space, and and and, and trusting that people are just going to buy tickets for this event because surely nobody has anything else going. <clears throat> on in life, right, on uh, August 18th or whatever. And uh, like, a, like two days before we were supposed to close ticket purchases, we had like five people that bought tickets. Uh, just for the record, that's not enough to cover uh, the space and uh, the catering, you see. And so what did we do? I mean, we went to we went to, like literally a bunch of us go to the same dentist, dentist who graduate. Was we always threatened him? We will not come to you anymore unless you come to the reception or to the to the whatever. What was it called? I can't even think now. The reunion. Thank you. Hey, unless you come to the reunion, we're, you're you're losing like ten customers. So you do have to pack it up and come on. He did. It was it was great. We guilted him into it. And then, but then we just started bombarding people, going and finding them. Hey, man, we haven't seen you in like a decade. It'd be good to see you again. And, and before you know it, we got it. We had enough. And we had a party, and people came. This is how Jesus came. He didn't come to sit there and passively go, man, I sure hope some people show up. No, he went and found them to go and seek and to save the lost. The third way, okay, the third way the New Testament finishes the sentence, in Luke seven thirty four. Jesus says this, that the Son of Man has come eating and drinking. You say, well, that sounds a little bit different, doesn't it? He, the first two sound big. It's like not to not to be served, but to serve, to give his life as a ransom for many. He came to seek and to save the lost. And then the third one, he came eating and drinking. Tim Chester's pointed out that the first two are statements of purpose. He came to serve, to give his life as a ransom, to seek and to save the lost. The third is a statement of method. It's methodology. He came eating and and drinking, this is at least one expression of the will of him who sent Jesus into the world. This is why Jesus came. He came to do these things. It's what He came to accomplish. It's a clear ex- explanation of why the, the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, to use how, how John talks about it. And even in the method statement, we will see uh, the will of the Father expressed as Jesus came in the ordinary. He came in the mundane. Like he came in the elemental. He came to the restaurants. He came to the neighborhoods. He came to the cookouts. He came to the reunions. And he lived a life that we can relate to because he lived a life here among us that looks just like ours. Jesus might very well have shown up at your trivia night. He might show up at your ball games. And he might even show up at your birthday parties. And we know, or what we know, is that if Jesus had done all the miracles if he had lived the perfect, holy, blameless life, walked in perfect obedience to the law, but never paid the ransom for our sin, he's not who he says he is. He cannot be who he says he is. He cannot be the bread of life unless he gives his life for ours. And as those disciples stood there with him, grumbling at this hard teaching Jesus is effectively saying to them, and this is a paraphrase, this isn't in your Bible, but this is what I believe he's saying. He says, if this is too offensive for you, if this teaching is enough to make you stumble, if this is too scandalous for you, just wait until you see the scandal of the cross. You see, the wall of scandal in chapter 6 is just a hint of the scandal of the cross. It's just a taste of the scandal. Because you see, the cross is the first step in the ascension of Jesus to where he came from. As Don Carson has said, if the disciples find Jesus' claims, authority, and even his language offensive, what will they think when they see Jesus on the cross? Because that's how his ascension truly begins. It's the supreme scandal of human history. It's that the innocent would be sacrificed for the guilty. That the good would be crucified for the sake of the bad. That the righteous one would die for the unrighteous many. You see, the ascension of Jesus begins not in a valley, but on a hill. It doesn't begin on a throne, but on a cross. And this is offensive. It strikes against everything we think we know about justice and and fairness. I'm often asked how it can be how it can be good that God would save some but not everyone. If God is loving, this is normally how this is phrased. If God is loving, if God is good, why would he not save everyone? That's a question I get a little more than often. If God is good, why would he not save everyone? How am I, and it's always asked with that, how, am, how are you supposed to reconcile this? How are you supposed to make sense of this? How do you reconcile the idea of a loving God allowing people to go to hell? It's just the wrong question, though. The question is not why would a loving, just, fair, holy, and righteous God not save everyone, but why would a loving, just, fair, holy, and righteous God save even one? The other way that question is asked is why does God allow bad things to happen to good people? I love that question. One of my favorite responses I've ever heard to that is that only happened once and he volunteered. You see, that's the scandal of the cross. And Jesus knows that if they can't handle the idea of eating his flesh and drinking his blood, if that's too much for them, if that wall is too high, too wide, then they will never understand the cross. Paul says in 1 Corinthians, he says, For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, and he calls it a stumbling block, literally a scandal. A scandalous block is what he's saying there. A stumbling block to the Jews, and then he calls it folly to the Gentiles. He says, our message is offensive to one group, and it's, <laughs> it's absolute lunacy to everyone else. So if you didn't know, that's the fine print on Christianity, by the way. Your message is either offensive or it's crazy talk. That's what you've been given. That's the message that we have. That's the pathway of Christ's ascension. And it's just too much for us to swallow on our own. Look at verse 66. Look at that. We're told, after this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. It was too much. I mean, it was just too much for them to take. That pill is too much to swallow. It was offensive. It was foolish. And so Jesus said to the twelve, look at that. He says, do you want to go away as well? And in 68, Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Now, now how? How did they come to know that? How did they come to believe that? What did Jesus say to them? He, he's telling them, and he's telling us how this works. Look back at 44. Jesus says, No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. He says, This is not possible. You can't come to me unless something outside of you draws you to me. It's not part of your natural DNA. You're not built with this. It's not part of the fiber of your existence. It's something totally alien from you has to come and draw you to me. And in 63, he says this. He says, it is the spirit who gives life. We just sang it. It's the spirit who gives life, the flesh, Is no help at all. And so everything that you and I, everything that you and I naturally bring to the table in this conversation is of no help. It does not benefit us, and I think we can agree he's actually being kind there. What we bring to the table is what condemns us it's our sin, it's our brokenness. And so he says, the words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. Okay, so it's not just that the Spirit gives life. As if we already had some, and he gives us a little more. I think that's how a lot of us tend to think of it. That we start with a little bit of life, and then the Spirit comes along and goes, here, here's a little more, and here's a little more. No, it's that we were dead, and he makes us alive. See, that's the glory of the gospel. It's not that you get a little bit more to carry you through tomorrow. It's that you get to live, period. the Spirit wakes the dead. And when that happens, the scandal of the cross all of a sudden moves from offensive and foolish to gracious and glorious. It, it literally becomes, as Paul says, the aroma from life to life. That's how he describes it. It goes from the stench of death to the stench of, to the aroma of life. I don't think stench of life is a good way of saying that. Sorry, And we remember that that God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. Listen, the wall is not complicated. Like, yeah, I mean, it's too high to get over. It's too high for us to just get over. It's too wide for us to go around and there's no way to dig under it. I'm not saying the wall is easy. But it's not complicated. You see, just because something's impossible doesn't mean that it's Complicated. The the disciples saw the wall, just like we saw the wall that that day out at whatever that fort was, and and we're told that many of his disciples, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. Now I want you to remember they were around Jesus. Not, Not spiritually around him, physically, literally walking with him. They had eaten the bread. They had eaten the fish. Remember that? They were literally around him, but they were not united with him. They had not tasted and seen that the Lord is good. They had not eaten his flesh. They had not consumed his blood. They, had not, they hadn't bought in. They had not trusted in Jesus. And all they could see at this point now was this impossible wall And Jesus knows that. And he knows that that wall is but a hint of the offense of the cross that's coming. We need to remember that the Bible doesn't say that the Son of Man came so that you could have entertaining Sunday mornings. The Bible doesn't say that the Son of Man came to bring you into a decent social circle, to give you a a nice house, or, or even better health. The Bible doesn't even say that the Son of Man came to teach you how to live a good life. Now, the Bible says that the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And then the Bible says that the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. He came to pour out his life with what Peter calls the words of eternal life. That's what Jesus offers us at the cross. That's what what Jesus was doing at the cross. It's where all my sin, past, present future, every bit of it was laid upon Jesus. So all my debt, every bit, by the way, this is my testimony, that all my debt, every bit of it, every lie, every drop of jealousy that I feel in my heart, every lustful thought, every selfish motivation that I have, every single one of those, every ounce of it was put on Jesus at the cross. It was at the cross that the innocent took the punishment of the guilty. At the cross, the holy was made profane. At the cross, the pure was pierced for our transgressions, right? At the cross, the one who healed was crushed for our iniquities. That's the scandal of the cross. It's that that with his wounds, we're healed. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says it best. It says, For our sake he made him, who, him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. That's the scandal of the cross, but it's also our hope of salvation. That's, why, that's what we rest in as we go into this week, into this next season of life, whatever that season's going to bring. And most of us have no idea what the next season's going to look like. I mean, we all think we do, but tomorrow that'll change. T- 15 minutes from now that might change. It's that the Holy One of God died for the sinner. It's that He loves us even when we are unlovable. It's that He holds us even when we try to run away. Oftentimes I imagine that God sees me like my toddler, squirming to get out of His arms, and He must think how foolish I am. My kid can't escape. He's pretty quick, but he can't escape. As much as I struggle, as much as I fight against Him, He must think, poor child, just let me carry you. How silly we must seem, and yet he loves us, and yet he came to find us, and yet he died for us. That's the most glorious scandal that you will ever encounter. In 19th century, hymn writer William Reese said it this way, and I'll, I'll just close with this. He said, on the mount of crucifixion, fountains open deep and wide, through the floodgates of your mercy float a vast and gracious tide. Here is love like mighty rivers poured in unceasing from above. Heaven's peace and perfect justice kissed a guilty world in love. That's the scandal of the gospel, the scandal of the cross, is that the guilty could be loved. Let's pray together. Father, we confess to you, or I confess to you, that I, I, I too often try to run away Man, I try to go my own path. I try to make my own trail. I try to do it my way. Um, I try to prove myself. Gotta confess that what everybody knows, that if we knew the inner workings of our own hearts, we would hate ourselves. And yet you choose to love us with that never-stopping, never-breaking, always-and-forever love that never gives up on us. God, thank you for never giving up on me. I pray now that you would be with us as we go from here. Let us walk in the joy of our salvation that you give us because of the cross. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.